Not to use an old cliche, but they do say the only certain thing is uncertainty, and that is particularly true for oil prices these days. Earlier this month, the price of crude plummeted by 10 bucks in a single day, uh, and then it plummeted by 8 bucks the other day. <laughs> Again, 7 or 8. It was big. Now, consumers here in Canada caught a bit of a break late last week. Um, there was a bit of a drop in gas prices, so that was a relief. Um but it's certainly something we've been talking about all summer, and it doesn't look like it's going to get much better fast. There's issues with refining, there's issues with supply. Um, and then on the other side, there's this push and pull going on because, of course, there are fears of a recession. So you have this idea that 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 you know that, that there is demand for oil and there's not enough of it, and yet there's this sort of idea that there's also going to be less demand. So we're in strange times. And to top it all off, of course, the Canadian dollar, which usually tracks quite well with the price of oil, is not tracking with the price of oil right now. So we're paying a bit more on that front too. Christia Freeland, our finance minister and deputy prime minister, did get into trouble though for saying this about uh, about high gas prices. I believe that the energy crisis that the world is going through right now absolutely does mean that we need to focus on the green transition. Yeah. I mean, she's not wrong. But is that what people want to hear now? Is that what you want to be told when you're trying to fill up or making some tough decisions about what to spend your money on this week is that, oh, it's all part of a transition. Of course not. We understand the long game here. Transitions take time. And this might be a very bumpy one. At least that's the sense we're getting right now. Um, but to talk about the green transition when people are asking pretty clear-cut questions about, hey, listen, I'm having trouble putting food on the table and filling up. Uh, what can you do to help me out? Or how much longer is this going to take? Or is there anything out there you can do? It's just, it's tone deaf. The affordability issues are here and now, not uh, not in some transition that's taking place or is about to take place or is taking place. Anyway, so what is happening? Where is it headed? And what will it mean for you, the consumer, in the coming months? We thought we'd find out. And who better to talk to than Rory Johnston? He's founder of Commodity Context. That's market research into oil and gas. You can find it on Substack. And he joins us now. Thanks for your time. Thanks so much for having me, Ben. So uh, for those of us who don't pay close attention to the uh, to the oil market, other than when we fill up, uh, what has been going on the last 90 days or so? Because it seems like it's just been a roller coaster. Yeah. And, you know, just for the benefit of kind of your listeners, I'm actually going to rewind even a little bit earlier than that and kind of start out the year. So we started off 2022 with, you know, like a building crude oil crisis. There wasn't enough crude oil. U.S. production wasn't growing as fast as it had historically done, uh, which was the main thing. The U.S. shale patch had essentially kept a, a cap on oil prices for much of the past decade. That had really slowed down into the pandemic, and we had this, you know, surging demand coming out of uh, coming out of COVID. Um, you know, at the beginning of the year, things were looking extremely strong, and we didn't have some of the demand concerns we have, you know, today. So we start off as a crude crisis, and then fast forward a couple months, and it was kept getting worse and worse, and prices kept going higher and higher. And we almost hit $100. But just before that happened, you know, a surprise to many people, myself included, Russia decided to completely break with every possible you know, norm and invade Ukraine. And that obviously pushed the market into absolute overdrive, uh, oil prices rocketed higher to hit their, or so this is crude oil prices, you know, rocketed higher to hit their 
their highest level since the 2008 kind of mega price spike. But on top of that, we also had this explosion uh, and kind of breakdown of the global refining market, which is frankly something that we really haven't seen historically. The refining market has just been always very well supplied. So on top of even when you know you or I are seeing, let's say, $120 at that, you know, at the you know, on the screen for oil prices, we are actually paying more like the equivalent of $180 oil because of that refining bottleneck. And you know, the way you measure that, there's something called a crack spread, which is the difference between the price of oil and the price of something like gasoline. Normally that's ranges in, you know, $15, maybe $20 if it's a really good year for refiners. That was more like $60 to $70 at the height of this crisis. Um, so all that together really pushed pump prices higher. Then finally, the, the, you know, for, for you know, Canadians, the biggest difference in this oil price cycle that we haven't experienced really in, you know, in, in modern memory, at least, is that the Canadian dollar didn't rally back with the price of oil. Normally, when we have you know, $100 or more for crude, the Canadian dollar is near par with the US dollar. Whereas for the majority of this, and still today, we're sitting at near 80 cents to the US dollar. So historically, we got a bit of a buffer with our currency appreciation. Uh, but now you know, we don't have that buffer. So we're paying an extra 20, 25% of the pump, uh, more than we would be used to all else equal. So I think all that combined has really just contributed to by far the highest you know, nominal and honestly real kind of price uh, paid at the pump for consumers. So we're in a really, really tight moment. And I think it's really hurting people. I mean, it, it, you know, it's costing my family, you know, depending on the week, 100 to $150 to fill up our, fill up our family car. And that is, you know, that really bites. Um, and I think a lot of Canadians are feeling that cost pressure right now. And to make matters worse, everything else is also getting much more expensive. So I think we're even noticing, you know, you know the wallet's already feeling tight. And then you have to, and then you go and you see $2 plus a liter for gasoline at, at, at the station. And I think it's really contributing to this overall feeling of you know, high inflation and really eroding purchasing power for Canadians. If we break it down a bit, we know the situation in Russia, the situation in Ukraine is probably not going to change in the short term. Uh, it doesn't look like the Canadian dollar is going to rally back either. So I guess the one area where there could be some relief is in is in refining. Is that is that correct? Do we see anything any any relief on the on the horizon here? Yeah. So I mean, the way I've been describing what's happened in the refining market, uh, and I wrote a piece on on commodity context uh, two weeks ago or so on this, and was, essentially what happened was was COVID collapsed the bridge we had in place between call it the legacy era of kind of old refineries and all the new refineries that we were expecting to come online this year and, and you know, even last year and beyond. And what happened was a lot of the refineries, you know, a lot of refineries in North America, for example, are extremely old. There's a, there's a refinery in Houston we've all been watching that's right on its last legs and it's over a hundred years old, which is extremely old yes. for, you know, this kind of infrastructure, um, you know, well past its kind of, you know, initially conceived, you know, you know, service life, like well beyond probably double plus, right? So a lot of those when they were on their last legs, COVID hit, 
you know, gas prices. I mean, around the corner for me in Toronto, you know, gasoline was going for 65 cents a liter, which I had never seen it in my life. That kind of environment was obviously not great for refiners. And anyone that was, you know, considering closing down in the next couple of years decided to accelerate those plants and close down immediately. At the same time, a bunch of the refineries that were supposed to be coming on in 2020 and 2021 and into this year were all postponed and pushed back, if not explicitly in terms of a strategic purpose, but because of all of the disruptions and labor disruptions and supply chain disruptions, everything else. So we had this kind of gap that opened up between those two kind of realities. But you know, the benefit, you know, the good news, the optimistic take here is that all of those refineries that were going to be coming online still are coming online. They are just coming online a little bit later. So we're getting a lot more refinery capacity this year than we were than we were expecting, you know, back in 2019 um, and into next year. So I do think that the refinery side, you know, the refinery crisis is fundamentally short lived. But then I think that just shifts us back to the crude oil issue again. And I think that's going to be much more kind of intractable on a longer term basis because again, for you know, it, it's hard to you know remember just how normal uh, you know the you know rapid pace of U.S. shale production had become in the decade prior to COVID. U.S. shale producers accounted for about two out of three of every barrel produced incrementally globally. Two you know two thirds of growth of oil supplies of the last or the pre-COVID decade were the U.S. That is just a level of dominance that really has never been witnessed in the oil market's history before. And I think, you know, now we're seeing growth at far slower rates, despite much, much higher prices. And I think that combination is going to make it very, very difficult for the market to balance anytime soon, because really outside the United States, OPEC is mostly tapped out. And then you're looking at Canada, which is going to have some growth, but it's reasonably slow in terms of oil market price response. And you have a couple other countries, mainly Brazil and Guyana. And outside of that, there really isn't much oil coming online anywhere else. So no, I think I this the, is the big yeah. challenge. You know, So how high do prices need to go uh, to incentivize this kind of production growth? And I think that's, what, unfortunately, what we're going to have to find out. I'm talking to Rory Johnston. He's the founder of Commodity Context, market research at oil and gas. You can find that on Substack. We're talking about just the year that 2022 has been in the oil and gas uh, business, specifically at the pumps, but also what's behind it, the fundamentals. It's been a very strange year. Lots of things that we were used to seeing and we have not seen this year, as Rory was mentioning. A lot of that is down to both the price of crude after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, as well as a crisis in the refinery uh, system driving up prices and the fact that the Canadian dollar hasn't rallied around the increasing price of oil, which is, of course, in of itself. Uh, strange. When we come back, we'll talk a bit more about just uh, what the future may hold. I know it's, we don't necessarily want you to get at the crystal ball. I know it's tough in this business, but uh, we'll try anyway after this. My guest this half hour is Rory Johnston. He's founder of Commodity Context. That's market research into oil and gas. You can find it on Substack. You can also find Rory Johnston on Twitter, where you can uh, see what he has to say or preview what he's writing on Substack as well. Uh, Rory, there's been a lot of fuss recently about how you know the idea of price destruction and how these oil prices will, in fact, uh, gasoline prices will come down eventually. Uh, because, for instance, as the finance minister said, we're moving quicker towards a green economy and so forth. Is any of that make any sense at this stage of the game? Or is that all kind of far off in the distance if you're the average consumer? Unfortunately, I do think it's still mostly far off. That said, you know, with prices this high for gasoline and oil more broadly, all else equal, it's definitely going to accelerate the energy transition. 
But the other challenge is that many of the reasons that we have high prices in many of these uh, fuels and broader commodities are these kind of supply chain bottlenecks, these issues that are still coming out of COVID. And those affect, you know, renewable you know, our, our electric vehicle production and renewable technology uh, kind of investment as much as oil and gas in many ways. So, you know, my family was just looking at a, a vehicle recently, and it's really hard to find an affordable family-sized vehicle right now in Canada, um, you know, on the electric side. It's it's still tough. There still isn't a huge amount of availability and and kind of delivery times keep getting pushed back. I do think though, you know, like, like that transition is fundamentally inevitable. It's just a question of timing. And I do think, you know, to, to your initial point, you know, high gas prices are going to incentivize that, you know, $150 oil is going to push towards electrification much faster than $50 oil would all else equal. When we look at what's happening now with in terms of the economy and predictions of, of uh, perhaps a recession now often and, and what's going on in China as well with what we think may be another resurgence of COVID, uh, which could also uh, dampen demand for oil a bit. Normally, you it's it seems odd that you have these sort of polar things pulling at the price of oil, one of which is high demand and low supply, and the other is this idea that the economy is weakening. Uh, where do you see oil going in the next few months if either of those two things play out? Yeah, and I, you know, and I, so I've been in the industry about a decade. And normally, when oil analysts are debating an outlook, you know, one person's bullish and one person's bearish on the price of oil, normally the difference between them is maybe a million barrels a day, usually less. And and you know, most of the big talking points are kind of hundreds of thousands of barrels a day in terms of scale. And again, for perspective, globally, we consume about give or take 100 million barrels of oil a day. So we're talking very, very small percentages, you know, above and below uh, leads us to kind of big differences in outcome. But the pace at which things are changing this year, you know, you know, we're talking two, three, four million barrels a day swings in outlooks of major fundamental variables, whether, you know, whether or not that's U.S. production, as we were talking about earlier, or, you know, OPEC spare capacity, or is Russia going to be able to continue to produce anywhere near where it is right now without the assistance and capital of Western oil majors and oil field service companies? And then, as you were saying, China is this massive question. You know, you know, the latest data we have from China showed that in their latest kind of wave of lockdowns, uh, demand in China fell by somewhere in the ballpark of 3 million barrels a day or 3% of global kind of demand in the in the span of two months. That is normally the amount that, you know, global demand grows by over the course of two years. So we're talking, you know, things are extraordinarily volatile, which I do think helps go a long way to explaining why prices have been so tremendously volatile. I think everything is just volatile right now, which is, you know, particularly difficult uh, in a whole bunch of ways. It makes it really tough for consumers to figure out how to plan for the future and how to budget. It makes it really, really difficult on the flip side for producers to you know, think, are these prices sustainable? Or you know, let's rewind you know, you know, a week and a half ago and any, any producers that were considering increasing investment to produce more, well, you know, last Tuesday, oil dropped by more than $10 a barrel in a single day in the third worst day for oil prices in the market's history. So, you know, <laughs> it's really, really hard to be sure of anything right now. And typically what that just means is, you know, a lack of action and people kind of, you know, waiting and seeing how things turn out. Unfortunately, we're waiting and seeing how things turn out in a pretty bad starting position. It's not like we're it's not like we're comfortable right now. So I think this is the challenge we have to face. And I, you know, 
my presumption is that eventually we will start to see faster growth out of the U.S. shale patch again. But I think that you're likely going to need higher equity prices in order to for those companies to feel like they're justified in doing so. Because the big reason many of them haven't been investing like they used to was, you know, is that they have, you know, in the in the decade prior to COVID, that period I was saying where they were two out of three, you know, two out of every three barrels produced incrementally or growth, you know, they actually made very little money. In fact, they you know, as, as a sector, they lost almost half a trillion dollars of investors' money in unprofitable production. So many investors, many holders of, of, of you know, stock of these companies are saying, don't invest anymore. Who knows what's going to happen? You know, finally, I get my payday after a decade of you know, relatively negative returns. So I think this is the challenge we're facing now. And with you know, with the central banks right now, you know, focused so much on inflation and tightening policy, this is causing equity market volatility and oil and oil producer equity values or stock prices have plummeted over the over the past month. Which again, if I if you think that's the main thing that could get these companies producing again, well, we, we've taken a massive step back on that front. So I think you know only time will tell. But I think that's the challenge we face right now. And I guess for Canada, uh, I have about a minute and a half left here. What does that mean for, for the oil patch here? Because clearly the same companies, first of all, there's ESG pressure on a lot of them. Uh, and B, if they're not, uh, you know, if they're seeing a volatile market and um, stock prices falling, they're also good, probably going to be hesitant about reinvestment, aren't they? Absolutely. And then add on top of that things like concerns about avail- you know pipeline availability and all the classic concerns that, that, that have kind of plagued uh, the Canadian oil patch and oil sands in particular. I do think that we will see some incremental growth out of Canada. You know, nothing like the heady days of, you know, 2010 to 2019. Um, But I do think that, you know, it will be one of the few places in the world that will continue to grow production, but again, at a much, much slower pace. And unfortunately, because of, well, U.S. shale, uh, we always talk about, you know, you know, will U.S. shale come up or down? It's because they're uniquely fast in, re- in responding to price signals, whereas the Canadian oil sands is some of, if, is some of, if not the slowest responding investment on the planet. In the industry, you just have such a high hurdle because these projects you know, takes so long to build and so long to pay off. The example being, you know, something like you know Suncor's Fort Hills mine, which is one of the one of the one of the last kind of oil sands mega projects to be built. That will be producing for decades and decades. Uh, whereas an oil, uh, whereas a U.S. shale uh, well will produce the majority of its useful oil in the first eighteen months. It's a much different kind of a kind of production method. And I think that's why. You know, for better or worse, you know, we're we're going to have to depend on U.S. shale to kind of hopefully come to the rescue and start pumping more at some time soon here. Roy Johnston, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thanks so much for having me, Ben.